Well, again, good morning. Welcome. So glad that you're here. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here at the Olathe campus of Christ Community. Uh, so glad that you've chosen to, to worship with us on this dreary uh, morning um, together. Why don't we, why don't we pray? Uh, if you were listening to those words read, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's a big topic, right, of what does it mean uh, to live this life together, what Christ calls us to as his people. And so let's pray. Let's ask God to help us in that. God, we are so thankful that, um, God, that when you call us to yourself through your son, Jesus, that you don't call us to do it by ourselves, uh, that you call us with a community of people to, to know and be known, to love and be loved by, to serve and to be served. God, I'm so thankful for that. God, even as I, as I think about those in this room, God, the ways that we, you have enabled us to live this out, this kind of unity, this kind of, of selfless love for one another, and the things that you have been doing through us, your church, as a result, it gets me so excited. God, these are, these are good times uh, to be a part of your church here in this place. So give us wisdom and grace as we look at this, these ancient words. Help us see how they speak to us, uh, even now, even today. We pray these things for the glory of our great Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, I have to to say, I have a, well, a little bit of an intensity problem. Um, Those of you who know me know what I'm talking about. If you've been here any length of time, I get a little excited, right? Uh, I don't don't go halfway uh, with anything. I know what I like, what I want, how I feel, uh, and when I go in... I go all in. So, for example, if I, if I want to eat unhealthy, I want it fried, covered in cheese, with butter somewhere on the table, right? Go big or go home, right? Uh, if, I, if I'm working out, right, I, I want to end my workout feeling like I'm just about to, to puke, okay? Um, when I work, I don't take breaks. When I rest, I don't take breaks. I, I love to turn it up to 11, okay? That's just kind of how, how I roll. I, I love extremes, now, didn't know if you knew this about me, um, but I'm also a pastor, okay? And, and maybe, maybe you've heard the phrase or, or something similar um, that one of the problems, one of the world's biggest problems are religious extremists, right? I mean, you've heard that, right? I mean, most of us probably have. And honestly, as it's commonly understood, I don't think I can agree more, right? I mean, there are a lot of crazies out there aren't there? So where do we fit in? You know, us here, run-of-the-mill, average kind of religious folk, right? I don't really like that word religious. I mean, I think religion is, is man's attempt to get to God, and the gospel shows God's attempt to get to us. I mean, that's, that is a big difference, but, but you get the idea, right? Where, where do we fit? Because we often, we kind of get lumped in sort of all together, don't we? Um, that we're too extreme in our, in our beliefs, so that we're... We, tend to be hate-filled or, or judgmental, uh, radical fundamentalists, just like sort of, you know, all the rest, right? So where do we fit? Well, friends, I don't, I don't think it's that we're too extreme. In, in fact, I don't think we're nearly extreme enough. Nothing should be more extreme than the church. Wait, What? I knew it. Nathan's starting a cult. That's what's, that's what's happening here. You've known it for years, right? You could see it in my crazy, fiery little eyes, right? 
Or maybe, maybe you hear that, that phrase that we're not extreme enough. Maybe you hear that and think, yeah, man, we need to, we need to push aside our enemies, right? We've got to take back America, whatever, whatever that happens to mean. Uh, and generally, we, we've got to be you know, more obnoxious and louder in our faith. Some of you are probably worrying that I'm going to start advocating that we you know, picket funerals or start blowing stuff up. Well, f- for the record, okay, I'm not. That's not where we're going. And besides, by definition, I'm not really sure any of that stuff is all that extreme. I mean, shameful, yes, terrible, absolutely. But extreme? Well, according to dictionary.com, extreme means of a character or kind farthest removed from the ordinary or average. So extreme means abnormal, right? Unexpected, anything but average. And I hate to say it, but fighting, arguing, pushing aside the people that we disagree with or don't like, uh, responding in the most obnoxious way possible, that's just the average, isn't it? That's not extreme. That's the norm in a world like ours. And it's not just religion, right? Look at politics, my goodness, right? The, the, the hate-filled rhetoric, the re- any refusal to work together, demonizing opponents. I mean, crazy is sort of the new normal, isn't it? Or, or think even about the, the atrocities of the last century. Historians estimate that over 141 million people were murdered um, just in the last century alone in the name of, of secularism. You know, essentially the, the anti-religion religion of Stalin and Lenin and Mao, etc. 141, that's more than any other religion combined in all of history together. That many people. So hatred is it's kind of the norm, right? I mean, fighting with one another, arguing, uh, destruction, uh, any of those things. I mean, that's, that's just sort of commonplace, both of the religious people and non-religious people alike. It's sort of how we roll, isn't it? And all you've got to do is turn on the news or pick up a history book to see that. So let me say it again. I don't think we're too extreme. In fact, if anything, I don't think we're nearly extreme enough. Nothing should be more extreme than the church. Nothing should deviate from this status quo quite like us. And and I know, hear me now, I know that we've had our share of failures, right? Church history, I mean, if you've done done your work, right, it's far from perfect, to say the least. To say anything less would be either deceptive or just completely naive. It's got some ugly parts, doesn't it? And yet the world doesn't need fewer extremists, but more of the right kind. For who is more extreme than the one we follow? The one who gave up his rights, who who humbled himself, who died even for his enemies. He's the guy who started this strange thing called the church. And it's that kind of extreme that our world needs. I need a church like it. You need it. Olathe and Johnson County and Kansas City needs it. Not just a social club. Not just another power-hungry group of people bent on the satisfaction of their own rights and desires or the acquisition of their needs. No, no, something more. That's what what every other group tends toward. But not us. For according to Jesus, 
And according to the words of Paul here that we just heard read a moment ago, nothing should be more extreme than the church. And Paul gives us three reasons, just even in this, this little text here, three reasons that, that we, we are a called people, we are a selfless people, and we are a unified people, or at least we should be. And there's nothing else in the world quite like it. Nothing. We are called people. Not just a self-selecting social club. That, that means if, if you are a Christian, you don't decide to be a part of a church. That's already been decided for you. God has called you to be a part of a church. And so we're in this, this ancient book. It's in the New Testament. It's called Ephesians, right? And Ephesians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a local church similar to ours just a long, long time ago. And he writes only 30 years after Jesus, okay? And so think about this. Only 30 years, and already this movement, uh, unlike anything else in the world, has been, been spreading across that known region called the church. And the word church is the Greek word ekklesia. It simply and literally just means the called out ones, those who have been called out that's, that's who we are. We see that in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We are a people called out by God. And for Paul, to be called to Christ is to be called to the church. I mean, you can't separate them in the way he thinks, the way he writes, all of it. It's, it's, it's the same. To be called to Christ is to be called to his people, which is probably our first hurdle together, isn't it? A little bit. So we've been together this summer, right? We've been going through our core beliefs as a church, and we've been asking the question, does it really matter? And up to this point, for many of us at least, to say, you know, does it matter what we believe about God, the Bible, Jesus? Most of us would say, well, of course, right? But the church... It begins to get a little bit fuzzy there, doesn't it? Because some of us, right, in, in a room like this, some of us, let me be honest, you just, you don't want to be here, right? Show of hands, anybody? No? Okay. And you still, you don't, you know, you're, you're here for whatever reason. Somebody dragged you along or, I don't know, maybe you thought it was Starbucks and came in and just decided to stay. It's not, um, you know, but you're here. And some of us feel like, I mean, the church, it's just an ancient institution, right? It organized religion and all that. It's outlived its usefulness, and you really wish you weren't here. I, I get that. I really do, okay? I, I, I do, I think. But most of us probably wouldn't go that far, right? Because you are here after all, right? And so you've, you've made at least that choice, at least most of you have, to, to be here this morning. And yet, still, even for many of us, right, if we're honest about it, church is more of a, a take-it-or-leave-it kind of thing, Right? Kids, maybe that's even sort of the, the impression that you get from your parents. I mean, you'll, you'll come when it's, when it's convenient, right? And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. But if you're, if you're really honest, it's, it has much more to do with you than with anything else, right? What you get out of it, uh, what you like, what you don't like, how it meets your needs, your family's needs. Not that those are unimportant questions, right? Certainly. And yet at the end of the day, I mean, if, if you're honest, for some of us, church is it's more of a hobby than a calling, right? I mean, the idea of, of giving generously, serving regularly, of inviting others to join him, I mean, that just, seems, that just seems like too much, right? 
And then there's this guy named Paul who says right here that he's a prisoner of the Lord, right? Prisoner for the Lord. You see, Paul is writing this letter under house arrest in Rome, and he would be executed just two years after this for his belief in Christ and his passion for the church. Paul knew that he was called. Well, the same is no less true for you and me. I mean, really, if you are a follower of Jesus, it is because God has called you first to himself and second to his people. You didn't choose the church. I mean, you know, who would, right? And yet here you are. It's because God has chosen it for us. You didn't even choose Christ's community. You didn't, you didn't choose to come here this morning. Now, I mean, you know, free will and all, okay, granted. But you are here even now, even this morning, because God has called you here to this place. And he has called you to his people. So Paul says, live like it. Man, that's essentially what he's getting at there. Live with a purpose bigger than yourself. And in, in a world like ours, right, that's, that's an extreme statement because most times I prefer to live as if everything revolved around me, right? As, as if I was the, the, the center of my own universe. And my highest purpose is the satisfaction of Nathan. But what if we actually lived as if the God who made us actually called us, personally called us, to himself and to each other. What would that even look like? Well, a couple of things come to, come to mind for me when I think of this. I mean, I think for one, it would mean that there's no longer anything secular in your life. I mean, I hate that dichotomy, right? Sacred, secular. It doesn't exist, right? It, it just doesn't. Just wipe that language out of him. Everything is sacred, right? When God calls you, he calls all of you, all of who you are and everything that you have and all that you do and everything that you, all of it becomes called to him. I mean, we can't like sort of separate out these different things. I mean, your work matters. Your family matters. Your grades matter. The, the hobbies you have, the way you spend your free time and, and the way we spend our money, all of it matters because God has called all of us to himself. There is nothing secular. Everything is sacred before God. So, I mean, it changes the way we, we look at all of these areas in, in our life. Everything matters. But also, I think it, it, it shows us that, that we can, if we truly believe that we've been called by God, that we can actually live boldly for him. I mean, like Paul, right? I mean, the only way it makes sense for a guy like Paul, right, this brilliant individual 2,000 years ago to be imprisoned and actually end up being executed because he can't stop multiplying churches. I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's not just that he likes Jesus. It's that he can't stop getting it out there. (laughs) So they kill him. That only makes sense if Paul believes that he was called. And it only makes sense for us to live with a purpose bigger than ourselves if we believe similarly. That God has called us, that he has asked you, that he's asked me, if you're a Christian, to live boldly for him. To take steps of faith, things that hurt, things that are hard. The only reason we'd ever do that, or can, can truly do that, is if we believe that he's called us. And all of us, I mean, regardless of your beliefs, right, whether you're a Christian or not, we all long for our lives to count for something, to matter, don't we? I think the reason we feel is because God has called us to more. And when we together, the called out ones, the church, when we live this out, this, this mission greater than ourselves, there's nothing in the world quite like it. And we long for it. And our world is desperate for it. Nothing should be more extreme than the church. 
Of course, that's not enough, right? Uh, because you can, be, you can think that you've been called by God and still be kind of the worst, right? I mean, people, that happens all the time. Right? People who think that God has called them can be violent and judgmental and self-righteous. And ab- I mean, you know some of these people, right? They, they're the worst people in the world to be around. So that, that cannot possibly, simply believing that you're called cannot simply, cannot possibly be extreme enough. But we are called to be a selfless people. That's the second thing. Not just a special interest group you know, revolving around our own likes and dislikes, our needs and desires, out, out for ourselves and for, for what we get, but a selfless people. And aren't you so glad that all the Christians you know are just so selfless? Right? Look around the room, right? The person sitting next to you, it's a good time to do this, right? Elbow, elbow, right? Uh, I mean, it's just, it, we're lousy at this, aren't we? I mean, truth, truth be told, I, I, I'm convinced that sometimes I can be the most self-centered person I know. Just ask Kelly. Or, you know, maybe don't, but still. That, that's, that's me. But yet this, this is the community that Jesus creates. That he's in the process of creating. It's not here yet, right? We're, we're all in process. Even us as, as, as an institution 2,000 years old called the church, we are in process. But this is what he is creating. Look again at verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Okay, four big things there, right? I mean, humility, first of all, was it, isn't just thinking less of yourself, right? Sometimes we think that that's the case. I don't think that's really it at all. It's thinking of yourself less, Right? not being so obsessed with who you are, right? Which is really hard, right? Because in my mind, I'm a really big deal, okay? I mean, I'm my favorite person. Oh, be honest. You probably are your favorite person too, aren't you? I mean, let's be honest. There's nobody we like to think about more than us. And yet, Paul says, humility. Stop thinking about yourself all the time. And he says gentleness. So to, to renounce violence and harshness, and demeaning sarcasm, which is really hard for me, right? That's what he says. And what I think is so interesting about these first two virtues, I mean, we hear that, humility, gentleness, we think, yeah, those are good things, right? We like those. That's, you know, we think we do at least. But, but for the Greco-Roman world, those were not considered virtues at all. I mean, humility and gentleness were signs of weakness. They were despised in that culture. And Paul here writing this saying, no, humility and gentleness are virtues that you pursue. That's extreme in that culture. But that's, that's who Jesus is, right? I mean, he even calls himself humble and gentle of heart, right, when he calls his people. And Jesus flips everything upside down. And so Paul says, yeah, humility and gentleness. He also says patience here, essentially renouncing the, the tyranny of our own agendas, right? Good luck with that. And patience isn't just waiting for something. Patience, the, the word that's used here, it means to bear up under provocation. So it's not just waiting sort of passively for something. It's, it's when you feel, you know, that jerk just continuing to hound you. Or you feel that difficulty from somebody who disagrees with you or doesn't like you, or frankly, who would, who would, if they had their way, they would destroy you. We can all think of those people in our lives, can't we? You know, the individual she just can't stand. Maybe the person sitting next to you, right? 
Paul says patience. And he says, bear with one another in love. That's the fourth thing there. I mean, a better translation more literally would be to put up with each other in love. In love, though. That's, that's to renounce our own rights, right? The, the things that we have coming to us, the good things that we think we deserve or that are, you know, that are ours, ours by rights to say, no, those things are not, not important, not most important anyway. To renounce our own rights. And, and the reality is the best the world can do here is coexist, right? Tolerance. If we could all just sort of tolerate one another. Somebody sent me this picture recently to kind of point out how ridiculous that is. Are you right? Nobody wants a cake like that. Toler- I mean, tolerance, really. I mean, I just, whenever I see that or, or coexist, I mean, I get what's behind those statements. And I, there's, there's something beautiful about it. So I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that. But is that really the best that we can do? I mean, is that really the best that God calls us? No. Love is, is that's extreme, right? Love, not tolerance. That we got to love people who are different from us, people who don't like us, people who want to destroy us. Love our enemies even as we love ourselves. That is extreme. But that's what Paul calls us to. Nothing less. And I love that he's honest about it, though. I mean, he's just put up with each other in love, right? He knows it's not going to be easy. Love rarely is. But this is what Jesus calls us to, and nothing, nothing less. So, Give yourself away. I mean, just think about those words for a minute. I mean, that, give yourself away. What does that look like for us? I mean, I think really what Paul is getting at, essentially, is let yourself die for the sake of others. I mean, be that on the line. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul would end up doing, right? Just a little bit later. I mean, is that extreme enough for us? Now, yeah, sure, boundaries when we love one another. It's not loving to enable people to allow destructive behavior to continue. Of course not. But at the end of the day, whose needs and wants are most important to me? Whose happiness am I most vigorously pursuing in, in my life and around me? Or, or maybe another, another way of looking at it, when somebody steps on my toes... How do I respond? When my, when my plans get, get interrupted or thrown aside, how, how do I handle it then? And who am I actually sacrificing for in my life? Sacrificing for. And not just, not just at church, right? But this, this, is, this is a lifestyle that we're, we're called to in every area of our lives, that we give ourselves away at home and at work and at school and in our neighborhoods, that we are constantly finding ways to give more of ourselves to the people who need us. And we can only do that, obviously, if we're being filled up by this God who loves us, who calls us to himself. Who are you sacrificing for? And even in church, right, in, in this space here, I mean, do you come hoping that maybe, just maybe, you'll actually, if you're lucky, get something out of it? Or do you come, like, as your, as your ambition, your desire, that others might get something out of it? And so you act accordingly. You, you give and you serve in such a way that your, your chief desire is that someone else would benefit from a, a, an experience of the presence of God in this place. Are we giving ourselves away? But Nathan, isn't that a little extreme? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely it's extreme. But isn't that what Jesus did? I mean, he never asked us to do anything that he was unwilling to do himself on our behalf, right? I mean, 
he is our, he's our example, he's our motivation, he's our, he's our power, he's our forgiveness when we fail. He is all of these things for us. I mean, just think about it, right? Go through this list again, humility, right? God himself became a man and died on a cross, brutally executed for us. Not only does it show his humility, but it shows me how much I need to be humble. I mean, do you see it, right? That, that I, me, Nathan, I am so broken, so sinful, that the only way to rescue this guy is for God to become a man and die on a cross for me. And we Christians want to be self-righteous, judgmental, arrogant with others. Are you kidding? I mean, how is that even possible, right? We think about gentleness and, and patience. I mean, how gentle, how patient is God with us? We, even, even we who, who follow him as we hide from him, run from him, ignore him, spend most of our lives forgetting him. And yet he doesn't just put up with us in love. He pursues us in love. We're the worst, aren't we? I mean, think about it. Honestly, there is no one in your life or in this world, no one who will ever offend you more than you've offended God. Do you hear that, right? Do we believe? There's no one in your life, and some of us have had some horrible things happen to us, right? There is no one in your life who will offend you more than you've offended God, and yet he continues to pursue us, continues to pour out his love on us. And it's only then, only if we get that, only then can we possibly give ourselves away. And it's not just for those in the club, right? That's kind of what we're talking about, us here together, his church. But that's not, that's not it at all. Let me give an example. There's a, this ancient letter, I love this. It's from the Roman Emperor Julian the Philosopher way back in AD 362, okay? And so Julian, he writes this, this letter. Uh, he's bemoaning the fact that the, the Roman religion is in serious decline throughout the Roman Empire. And he blames Christians for the decline. He he blames them. Uh, And then he writes, for it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, that's his his name for Christians, Jesus was a Galilean, that these impious Galileans support not only their own, own poor, but ours as well. What a picture of the, I mean, this guy, this Roman emperor, right? The guy in charge of everything there. He's saying, we are in decline. And it's because, man, those Christians, they just, they don't, they don't, they don't just care for themselves even, which is radical enough. They care for all these other people. I mean, another example of this uh, in the book, The Rise of Christianity, it's by a sociologist named Rodney Stark. I love the subtitle here. How the obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. I mean, how, have you ever think about that, like church history and stuff? I mean, how did it, it go from this sort of small, tiny little group of uneducated fishermen to the dominant religious force really in the world today? In, in such a short time there in, in the Roman Empire, right? I mean, how did it grow so fast and so strong? Well, I mean, he argues and he has lots of historical evidence with this as a sociologist, right, looking at these things from a sociologist's perspective that for, for the biggest reason or one of the biggest reasons that he sees in this book is that it's because for the first time in history there was a group of people who actually, truly, genuinely cared for the marginalized and the oppressed. That, that, was, the, that was the biggest. If he, if he were to say, what's the one thing he'd say that, that's it. For the first time in history, people cared for somebody other than themselves who didn't necessarily even belong to their group. And so he gives lots of examples of like that. For, for women, for example, right? Women who have been marginalized and oppressed and still are in so many places, right? Even, even through religious oppression. But for the first time, women were, began to be treated as equals within the church community, regardless of marital status. 
I mean, the option in the Roman Empire, right, for a single woman as they, as they got older or for a widow, was, if they wanted to support themselves, it was sexual slavery. That was the number one option, and many chose it, but not in the church. Because the church respected women, and they provided for them, they cared for them. The church, the church was the first feminist, truthfully. And, and orphans, right? Uh, I mean, it was common practice in the Roman Empire back in that time. If you didn't want a child, you would just leave it out in the cold, right? They'll die. That happened regularly, but Christians collected those babies, raised them as their own, and many of them began to follow Jesus. Christians started the first orphanages. And even the plagues, right? You think about the plagues, if you know, if you know history, I mean, it's disastrous. Thinking about all these close-quarter people, right, in the great city of Rome living together. In the early centuries following uh, the, the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus, a third of the population of Rome would die in a plague. Just imagine that, right? Tons and tons and tons of people. And any time that happened, right, any time a new plague cropped up, the Romans fled in droves, right? They, they ran for the hills, right, to, to avoid contagion. Who could blame them, right? Who wouldn't do that? The Christians. They stayed, historical evidence, they stayed in droves. And they nursed not only their own sick, but also the sick of the, the family members who had been abandoned, the friends who had been abandoned for people who wanted to save themselves. And many of those Christians died, giving their lives as a result of, of nursing them back to health. But more of them lived, and many of them became Christians. Christians started the first hospitals. I mean, think about that, right? How does, how do you explain something going from one man to 12 disciples, to thousands of people in the first decade, to 56% of the Roman Empire by the middle of the 4th century, to 2.2 billion people today who claim to follow Christ on every continent. How do you explain that? Well, the Holy Spirit, sure. We talked about him last week, didn't we? Absolutely. The miracle of the resurrection, certainly. But don't underestimate that it was also a group of people, ordinary people like you and me, just like us, who refused to live simply for themselves and gave themselves away. That's extreme. And there is nothing, has been nothing in the world quite like it. So we're called people. We're selfless people, or we're supposed to be. And finally, a unified people. Not just a random collection of individuals trying to do our own thing. And not just people who, who are blindly uniform either, right? We just sort of follow orders. We don't have any distinct individuality or, or diversity within us. That's, that's not what Paul is getting at here. Not, not, not even close. Look at, look at what he says in, in verse 3. As he continues, he says, Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And we got to understand here too, because you know, when, we, when we read this and we think about unity and diversity and, and all of that, we sort of project where we're at historically, right? And for us to talk about diversity, that's, I mean, that's just commonplace. We're we, we long for diversity. We, we want to celebrate diversity. We are a diverse people as our, as our nation continues to age and all of that. And so we project that on this. For this church in Ephesus, I mean, diversity was still kind of like brand new, honestly. I, I mean that. 
I mean, historically, you, you, can, you can check the evidence. So Paul is writing to this church, and there's made up in this church, all of a sudden, all of these Jews and all of these Gentiles, people who never spent time together. I mean, in the history of the world, people stayed in their own groups. This is how it's been done, right? Birds of a feather flock together. And so Jews stay together, and Gentiles with Gentiles, and rich with rich, poor with poor, slave with slave, free with free. All of that, they, they stayed together in their own little places. And what's so interesting I mean, the Roman Empire was incredibly pluralistic on the one hand uh, because Rome would, would take over these various nations, tribes, peoples, and then they would make them all live in various places together, right? Because they didn't want any group to have too much power. And so you could have in one city, in one city block, all these different races, nationalities, ethnicities, religions, all of that. So it was incredibly pluralistic, and yet those people were completely segregated historically. They they didn't work together, hang out together, talk together, worship together. I mean, everything was in its neat sort of divided lines, everybody in their own little ghetto. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, truly, for the first time in the history of the world, Jews, Romans, barbarians, men, women, young, old, slave, free, rich, poor, the, the beautiful, the unwanted, the important, and the marginalized, all began gathering together on Sundays to commemorate the resurrection of this, this Jewish carpenter, worshiping him. Not just Sundays. They began all of a sudden to live life together, caring for one another, working together, loving one another. The old categories, I mean, this, this blows me away, okay? I hope you hear that. The, the, the old categories of class and tribe and race and family, which had defined their boundaries since the development of human society. Always the most important thing had been boundary, race and family and tribe and all of that. All of that now became second to this new thing called Jesus. Nothing had ever been that extreme. Christianity, Christianity is nothing if not a shared faith. So Paul says to us, make every effort to maintain that unity. Jesus died to give us that unity. And we don't create it, right? He doesn't say create it, make it, fake it. Doesn't, none of that. He says maintain it, fight for it, preserve it, for he is the one who made it. And just think about that. And again, I, I, I know that we've, we've blown it along the way, haven't we? If you look across churches and even, even here in this room and across you know, our city, our nation, world, across history, we haven't exactly been the most unified people. I mean, there, there are plenty of stains on the pages of, of religious and Christian history as well, without a doubt. And yet even so, even, even though there are so many things that we point to to divide us, Paul points to this incredible list of things that bring us together that unifies, that, that, I mean, that he just can't even, I mean, he, he almost it sounds like Paul's just getting so excited, right, talking about this. So let's go through that list real fast here. He says, he says there's one body, right? I mean, how can we not be together when we're one body, right? That, that's one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the church, that we are the body of Christ. And I love that metaphor because, I mean, it shows that there's diversity, right? We can't all be an armpit, right, or an eyeball. Um, and yet, a healthy body always works together. And so there's great diversity within unity. And he says there's one spirit. That the same spirit, the, the same God that we believe as Christians, that we talked about last week, right? He lives in every one of us who's a Christian. The same spirit that lives in me lives in you if you're a believer. And that same spirit lives in every Christian, in every church in America, and China, and Africa, and Iran, a- across Every generation, both past, present, and future, the same God lives within us. 
bringing us together. We've got the same hope, he says. That together we believe that this broken world will not define us. Death will not have the last word. And sin will not rule us. And that together we are headed in one direction. The reality is if if you don't like Christians, you're going to hate heaven, right? He says we have one Lord. You can't have Jesus all to yourself. The title Lord there is important. He He is our one master. It says we have one faith. There's only one, one gospel, only one way to God through Jesus. And that together we're all on that same path, those of us who, who know and claim to follow him. There's a beautiful picture of that in communion, isn't there? Of that one faith. That together we come, and we're Christians for 2,000 years, in every geographical place of our, of our world, over 2,000 years, we, we take from that same bread, drink from the same cup, unified together that this, this is our story. This is who we are. And similarly, he says one baptism. That we've all been dunked into the same pool. And I mean, that's the beauty of baptism, right? Not only does it unify us with Christ, it unifies us with one another. And if, if you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, I mean, don't take this the wrong way, but what's wrong with you? I mean, seriously, why not? I mean, if this is part of who you are, why not? I mean, literally, right, pun intended, take the plunge into this water that unifies us across all of space, time, history, right, all together into one body, into one family. We've got that coming up, right, in just a couple weeks, August 16th. If you've not been baptized and would like to be, talk to me or talk to one of our pastors. We'd love to to celebrate that with you. What a joyful celebration of what God has done in your life, drawing us together, unifying us as a community. And if you've been baptized, come and and celebrate with us. It's a great pool party. We have so much fun. Uh, That's just coming up in a couple weeks. And then finally, he says, one God and Father. And so, you know, he covers all the Trinity in here. Father, Son, and Spirit. They're all part of this oneness here for us. And this means, and I, think, I mean, this sounds crazy, but I think it's, I think it's what Paul's saying. That this, this means that you, if you are a believer in Christ, that you have more in common with a Palestinian Christian or somebody who lived in the third century who followed Christ than you do with another American or a neighbor or maybe somebody else in your, in your own family who doesn't know Christ. And that is extreme, isn't it? But the church is the only place in which unity, this kind of unity, is truly possible. There's just too much in our world that tears us apart, isn't there? I mean, everywhere we look, there are things that drive us apart, not together. But this, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus has done. This is what brings us together. And so what does Paul tell us to do? Sounds easy, right? Maintain it. Like, we don't even have to create it. We just have to, like, maintain it. Easier said than done. But together, we pursue what holds us together rather than what tears us apart, right? Hang on, think about, think about what tears us apart, even in this room as Christians or, or with other churches or across time or different cultures. I mean, what are the things? There are lots of things that tear Christians apart. Social status, money, education, physical appearance, musical preference, things that we like in a church service, how we raise our kids, the kind of schooling that we choose for them, race, ethnicity, nationality, 
politics tears us apart, doesn't it? I mean, the reality is if you can't worship with somebody who votes different from you, differently than you, you're just like everybody else at the end of the day. Gender separates us. Age, obscure theological nuances, denominationalism, right? There's no end to the list. And, and not to mention maybe the, maybe the biggest, oh yeah, right? Of course our sin separates us because we hurt each other, even unintentionally. We disappoint each other. And I mean, if you're new to this church thing, I mean, if, you, if you've been around for a while, you know, but if you're newer to this church thing, I just want to tell you, we're going to disappoint you. I promise. As, as a church, even individually, people, people are here, they're going to hurt you. Hopefully not on purpose, but it's going to happen. That's, that's life to get, it's messy, right? Because none of us are there yet. We haven't arrived and it, it can be an ugly thing. And yet this, this is what he calls us to. And so for many of us, I mean, there are people in this room you don't like, right? There are people in this room that you need to forgive or apologize to. But if he hasn't unified us, we're nothing. But if we actually live what he has called selfless and together, then there is nothing more extreme than the church. So I want to end with just a simple next step. And for all of us, okay, young, old, kids, um, doesn't matter. Whether you hate the fact that you're here, right, you, you've not been listening until now because um, I'm talking to you. So, I mean, regardless of where we're at, whether you've been a Christian for a long time, one simple next step, okay? Give church a try. And maybe that's a little obvious because you're like, well, we're here, so check, I guess. We've done that. I don't, I don't mean that, okay? Because I think it looks different for all of us because we're all at different places, right? Uh, so f- for some of us, for some of us, it's just a matter of taking it seriously. Like, don't, don't just show up, expect something. For others, maybe make it a commitment to be here regularly, you know, whenever possible, when you, when you can, or, or maybe even actually coming on time, right? Because church is, you know, it's a calling, not a hobby. For some of us, it's, it's getting into a community group, getting to know others, building relationships. For others, it's maybe finding a way to, to serve and I mean, as, as Sarah mentioned a little bit ago, we have five weeks until we take this leap into three Sunday morning services. Uh, this has left all kinds of holes wide open for us. It's a great time to plug in and find a place to serve. Or maybe, maybe for some of you, it means starting to give, just a little bit, even. For others of you, maybe you're giving a little bit, maybe it's time to start tithing or inviting somebody to church or getting baptized or stepping out in faith, doing something hard, maybe just putting your agenda aside. Or your cynicism. And listen, people, don't, don't for a minute think that the church is just in here. That's not, that's not what we mean at all. If you're a Christian, you bring us with you everywhere you go. You are the church. And so what does it mean for you to live this out in your home, right, with your family or your roommate? What does it look like in your school, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods. And just imagine for a moment what could be if we actually did this. If God actually continued to do this in us. Just imagine. Because, I mean, we already get a glimpse of that here, I think. I mean, one of the things I love about Christ's community is that so many of us together, we embrace this, right? We, we jump in and we, we are eager to see this. We, we long to see God's glory manifest through his church as we serve and minister to the people around us and to those, those here within us. And so we, we get a glimpse of that. I love being a pastor here as a result. It's just it's a lot of fun. 
But I think about, I think about the new believers that we've had coming lately. You know, people who are new to faith or people who are, who are renewed to faith, right? Some of you, that describes you, right? You kind of were there and stepped out for a while, and now, now you've, you've come back. I mean, God is, God is at work. We see that. We're going to celebrate that in the baptism. We've got several people who are, who are being baptized in a couple of weeks. I think about those of you who helped out the crisis pregnancy, crisis, crisis pregnancy center last week. Uh, instead of just sort of, you know, railing against abortion, caring for, truly caring for desperate women, right, in a moment of need. Or our partnership with Woodland Elementary, just down the street here. So many of you, I know, uh, brought school supplies to be able to donate to those who don't have uh, what it takes to be able to enter into school fully equipped. Uh, And some of you serve as as mentors in that place as well, investing in those students, loving them, caring for them. Our, Our community notices these things. And as a result, they see Jesus. For 2,000 years, nothing has been more extreme than the church, and this is the institution that you and I get to be a part of, that we're invited into by the God who made us, that we're called to for his glory and for the good of a world who needs it so much. And I mean, don't you just wonder what he's going to do next? Through us? Through us? 